It is uh, good to be back with you this morning. Uh, I, I wasn't fishing for applause, but if, you're, if you've been away or you're here for the first time, I've been away for, I guess, most of the last month, uh, in, first in Wilmore, Kentucky, then in Houston for a week um, for doctoral studies and classes and, and site visits. And let me say, um, to begin, just a word of thanks and appreciation uh, for the notes, the cards, uh, the encouragement that, uh, that I got from many of you. It was a very long month, and so it really, really meant a lot to me, and certainly I always appreciate John and Kimlin, everybody in the office that keeps things running smooth while I'm gone. Dad's here today, so a word of thanks again to Dad for being here and for preaching for two of the, the three Sundays that I was away, and Pastor Don um, as well. Just, just a word of thanks to all of you for everything you do. Uh, that was the last summer. Thank you, Jesus. Um, that, now, I'm not anywhere near done. Everybody keeps asking, are you a doctor yet? No. I have a year and a half still to go. But, um, but I don't have to go away for any more summers, and so I'm thankful for that. And uh, as I said, I've told every um, service that uh, each week we, I was worshiping um, in a church as you were worshiping. My heart and thoughts were with you. I confess, I told the 815 people, though, I said, I did not get up at 815 for church. Uh, I came at 11 o'clock services. And, uh, but uh, most weeks, anyway. But it is it's good to be back. The other thing, it was, it, it's a lot of fun and, and a great experience as a pastor to be able to worship in other places and see worship and participate and be a part of worship and, and just see how other churches do things. And there's a lot of value. You don't get to do that a whole lot. But was at one church a couple weeks ago, and the pastor, as he was preaching, he was on a stage like we have, and he kept hanging out right on the edge. And it was making me crazy <laughs> because I kept thinking, he's going to fall. And I was so distracted by his feet. And then I realized, that's what I do. So um, I will... Oh, Dad does it too? You hang out on the edge? Oh, really? Hey, Tony, can I get a favor? I'm like, would you go adjust that backlight? It is flashing something awful, and I know it's driving the people in the back row crazy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I was, I was aware, and so I was here. I really I do that too. So I will try my best to stay off the ledge this morning and, and do the best I can there. But I can't make any promises. I, I look forward to sharing some of the um, experiences with you as, as the weeks go, I'm not gonna, this is not going to be a what I did for my summer uh, speech kind of thing, but, but just sharing some of those experiences. I will tell you that last weekend in, uh, in Houston, we, had, we worshiped in five different churches on Saturday and Sunday. I got a lot of church last weekend and visited a lot of neat places in Houston. Anybody from Houston? Any Houston people? Okay, there are some big churches in Houston, let me tell you, and, and had a wonderful time. But it is great to be back with you. Now, what I want to do, focus our attention this morning on Acts chapter 17. That's our text. I encourage you, uh, if you have your, your Bibles, to open up your Bibles, to follow along. We're going to spend some time here this morning in Acts 17, even going to look back at Acts chapter 16. Uh, if you are familiar with Acts, if you're familiar with this narrative in the New Testament, then you may remember that about midway through Acts, right about 15, the, the focus shifts for the rest of Acts, 15, 16, 17, and beyond, primarily focuses on Paul and Paul's missionary journeys. And that's what we read this morning, Paul and Silas um, in Thessalonica. 
and one of their experiences there and want to pick up here in verse 1 of, of chapter 17. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. After Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the Sabbath days argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This is the Messiah, Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some ruffians in the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there is another king named Jesus. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this, and after they had taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. Friends and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious God, this is your word. We are your people. Do with it and do with us as you would. And speak to our hearts by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I I, I begin with this admission to you this morning. Is that I, um, I chose the version of the scripture. I chose the, the Bible version. The New Revised Standard version this morning. Specifically because of the phrase found in verse 6. The description of Paul and Silas and of the church that says, these are the people turning the world upside down. I I usually read from the the New International Version, and it describes that a little differently. And so here's a little uh, confession. If you were to open my Bible, you'd see that paper clipped in is a different scripture version, the NRSV, because I liked that. These are the people who have been turning the world upside down. In, in a wonderful connection, uh, this past week in Houston, as I said, we worshiped in five different ser- churches this weekend, but every day we visited churches, United Methodists and other denominations around Houston to see the kind of ministries and street ministries and urban ministries and, and ministries in the suburbs, all kinds of, of churches. But on the last day, on Thursday, it flew out Thursday afternoon, but in that morning, our group went to Windsor Village United Methodist Church, which is the largest United Methodist congregation in the United States. Uh, the pastor there is, by the, the pastor's name is Kirby John Caldwell. And uh, it is a, a wonderful ministry of urban renewal and city investment, and it would take a long time to try to explain it all to you. But the wonderful connection was, it was about 10 years ago on my first visit to Houston uh, for a conference that I heard Kirby John Caldwell preach, and he preached this text. And the title of his sermon was, Turning the World Upside Down. And ever since then, I've kind of gravitated toward that 
description of the church in Acts chapter 17. These are the people turning the world upside down because that's the kind of church I want us to be. That's the kind of person that I want to be. That's the kind of impact I want us to make. That people say they're just, they're, they're, turning, they're turning it upside down. They're making a difference. They're changing the world. And that's what Kirby John's sermon was about, being a church of impact. And I've heard Erwin McManus talk about this. I used this in a sermon years ago. Some of you may remember when he talked about the kind of church he wanted to be. And he was talking about um, animals. And, the, and, and he was using this as an example. Well, he was building to using a rhinoceros as an example. But this is where he was going with it. You know, animals in groups have names. Like a pack of lions is called a pride, okay? And um, a, a group of crows is called, you know what they're called? A murder. They're called a murder. What's that? Noisy. noisy. Yeah, they are. They're called noisy. I, I think a group of buzzards are called a committee. Um, <laughs> I'm not making that up. That's not, that's, I think that's what they're called. Um, and so he was, a group of flamingos, you know what a group of flamingos are called? The birds. They're called flamboyants. How about that? But a group of rhinoceri, I think that's the plural, rhinoceri, anybody know better? Okay, good. A group of rhinoceri, you know what they're called? They're called a crash. They're called a crash. Do you know why they're called a crash? Because a rhinoceros, in their weight, in their mass, in their size, in their heft, a rhinoceros can reach speeds of up to 30 miles an hour. But they can only see 30 feet in front of them. So that means whatever's at 31 feet, better move. Impact. Crash. I thought that's a cool definition of a church. That's, a, that's what we want to be. We want to be a crash. We want to be impact. We want to turn the world upside down. And so we wrestle with that. And we ask a question around here a lot that, that I heard from somebody else, and, and I've talked about it before. But we ask this question sometimes when we evaluate our ministry. We say, if we weren't here tomorrow, if Parish United Methodist Church was wiped off the face of the earth, who would notice? And who would miss us? beyond us, beyond those in the church, beyond those who worship Him, who would miss us if we weren't here tomorrow? And that drives a lot of what we do because we know that we're called to, to have an impact. We know that we're called to, to be a blessing in our community and beyond and, and to make a difference. And we do that. In fact, I was incredibly moved and blessed by the, one of the pictures that was on our Facebook page while I was away of the kids in our community that got the backpacks to begin the school year that many of you contributed so much to. Uh, and, and so we look at that, and, and I ask myself all the time, you know, being a church of impact, turning the world upside down, if we were gone tomorrow, who would miss us? But here's the confession. When I read... Acts chapter 17 again, and I began to study and I began to prepare, I realized I've been asking an incomplete question. I've been reading that a little bit wrong. Because while it is important and necessary and, and absolutely part of our call to be the kind of church that blesses our community in such a way that we'd be missed if we're if we were gone. I think there should be a part B to that. I think part A should be, if we were gone tomorrow, who would miss us? But here's part B. If we were gone tomorrow, who would be relieved? Who would be glad? Whew. 
They've been a pain in our butt. We're glad they're gone. Because that's really what Acts chapter 17 is about. When we read this description of the church, these are the people turning the world upside down. You've got to remember, that's not a term of endearment. That's not flattery. That's not a group of people complimenting the work of Paul and Silas of the church. That's a charge levied by Jewish religious leaders who want them gone. They want Paul and Silas and the others arrested. They want them beaten and they want them kicked out of town. And it wouldn't be the first time that happened to Paul and Silas and it certainly won't be the last. Because their presence, their ministry, their evangelism, was a threat, and it challenged the status quo. If we were gone tomorrow, who would be happy to see us leave? Now, my mind works like this when I read that, and I read this animosity that Paul and Silas caused in a lot of places, I start to say, what was it about them that raised so much anger, so much resentment, so much hatred? And so I start to, to dig deeper into that. And there's, there's, there's a, the obvious and, and true answer is that part of that resentment was because Paul and Silas preached Jesus. They preached a Messiah that these Jewish leaders would not believe in, would not accept, and considered that teaching heresy. They con- considered it a false um, gospel. And so understandably, from their perspective, they stood against that. But... Their anger goes much, much deeper. And so I started to study the text a little bit deeper. And there's an interesting description in verse 4. I think it's a pivotal description in verse 4 of the kind of people, the groups of people, that came to faith because of the ministry. Remember, Paul had gone three weeks. He went to the synagogue to preach. That was his pattern. He'd go to the synagogue. And the one thing I don't like about this version is that it says he argued. Really, the, the, the Greek word there is more he reasoned, he discussed he shared. It wasn't a combative, it wasn't a, 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 a disrespectful necessarily. It was a sharing with them the fulfillment of truth. And at the end of that, many came to believe it. And verse 4 says what those groups look like. Well, it says the first group, it says some of them, which really refers to the Jews. Some of the Jews who heard Paul's message came to believe in Jesus. They came to the gospel. They came to faith. We understand we've seen, we've seen that as a pattern from Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. We've seen that happen over and over again. So some Jews came to faith. The last group mentioned, which is fascinating and worth examining for another time, is it says a few prominent women. And that's really important because we live in a, we, we, we not live in a time, but this was during a time when the status of women was severely marginalized. So for the scripture to be very, very specific to say, hey, understand that some of these new believers were were influential and significant women. That's important. And that's worth taking note of. But it's the middle description, which included some of these women. It says some of them were devout Greeks, or maybe in some of your translation, devout Gentiles. Now, As a pastor, sometimes I throw language out there that I assume you understand. And I have to be careful about that. Understand what Gentile meant. Gentile meant not Jewish. So if you are not Jewish, you are Gentile. Romans, 
other parts of the world. Everybody who wasn't of the Jewish nation was a Gentile. And it says that some devout Gentiles, devout Greeks, came to faith in Jesus. Now, I want to stop there for a minute because there's context. There's big picture we have to understand because at its surface, that doesn't seem significant. I will tell you, I've read that text a hundred times. The word devout Gentiles meant nothing to me, at least devout. Devout comes from a Greek word. The root word is called isebo, and it means worshiping. These were Gentiles that worshiped in the temple, that worshiped in the synagogue, I should say, every Sabbath. But if you kind of start to reflect, and if, if you're familiar with the arc of the story of the people of Israel, then you may know that they, as a general rule, the Jewish people, were not all that concerned about Gentiles coming to faith. They were supposed to be. When they were chosen, beginning at Genesis 12, when God calls the family of Abraham to be his people, and, and they were kind of designated with this chosen people, um, understanding. They, their call was to not just bask in their privilege, but to understand it was a responsibility. The prophet Isaiah would say in chapter 49, verse 6, he says to the Jewish people, you are a light to the nations, so that salvation would come to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're the people that God is using to reach all peoples, to share his good news and his love and his grace. The problem was the Jewish people obviously are, um, often did not take that challenge very seriously. And they didn't live into that. And they would close ranks. And they would focus on themselves. And they didn't get along with the Gentiles. And they didn't get along with the Samaritans. And they didn't reach out to any of those groups very often. And the prophets would ro- repeatedly remind them of this. And this permeated the early church. When the first Christians, the first Jews came to faith in Jesus. And then all of a sudden Paul started and others started to reach these Gentiles, these non-Jews. They weren't sure what to do with them. If you go back two chapters in Acts, you can read all about that. The church realizing through God's work and through the work of Paul and the words of Peter and the words of James that the gospel was for all people. But the Jews very often didn't get that and they didn't live into that very faithfully. Now why does that matter? Then why would they be welcoming to Gentile believers in the synagogue? Because it wasn't their pattern. Now when you start to study, you realize that Thessalonia, Thessalonica, was a Gentile city. So as a Jewish leader, to have some Gentiles in your congregation meant life was easier for you. Meant the Gentile believers, the Gentile worshipers brought stability They brought credibility and they brought resources to the synagogue. So while your nature may not have been to be all that welcoming, their presence was an asset. And Paul and Silas threatened the asset. They threatened the stability. They threatened the comfort of the Jewish leaders. Because, brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts any of us in our tendency to see people as a commodity. That's exactly what was happening. The Jewish leaders saw those Gentile believers as a commodity. Their value was not in who they were, it was in what they provided. And Paul and Silas threatened that. And Paul and Silas did that over and over and over again. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 16, 
And I encourage you to do this on your own. I'm encouraging you to do it today. Go back and read Acts chapter 16. You'll read a story about a young slave girl who is, has a spirit within her, we'd say a demon, that gave her the ability to tell the future. But she constantly pestered Paul and Silas. Finally, Paul cast out the demon. He freed her from this internal bondage, if you will. It was a miracle. Now, you would think that a miracle would be met with gratitude. You would think that a miracle would be met with thanks. But in Acts chapter 16, verse 19, this is what you'd read. This is what we read. That when her slave owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they had Paul and Silas brought before the city officials. When they saw their hope of making money was gone. In other words, to them, when they looked at this young girl, they didn't see a person of worth. They didn't see a person of value. They saw an asset. They saw a resource. And the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts us in our tendency to value people on what they can do for us. And that's exactly what was happening in Thessalonica. It's what happened in Philippi, and it's what happens over and over again. And let me say this, because I don't want you to think I'm throwing stones at anyone else. I do it. I do it. I don't mean to do it. I don't want to do it. But it's an easy trap to fall into. A couple months ago, I ran in, met a guy in this community who um, I'd never met him before, not a part of the church, Found out I was the pastor. And he said to me, he said, oh, I know. So, and he named a faithful, active member of this congregation. He said, I, I know him. And I said, oh, my gosh, we, we, we love him. I love him. I can't imagine what we do without him. You know what? He does this for the church. And he leads this ministry. And he's involved in this support. And I started listing all the things this individual does for the church. And which was all true. Later on, I was reflecting upon that. And I thought, you know, you know what I didn't say? I didn't say, oh my gosh, we love that guy because he is a passionate follower of Jesus. I I didn't say, you know what, I really value him because he is a friend and has supported and, and his friendship has meant a lot to me. I didn't say, man, he for us is an example of somebody who wants to live faithfully for God. I didn't say all those things that described his being. I talked about his doing. And here's the honest confession. I talked about all the things that this person does that makes my job easier. I talked about all the things he does that makes it easier for me as a pastor because they're things I don't have to find someone else to do. And what I was doing was I was treating him. I didn't mean to. I'd never do it intentionally. But I was treating him as a commodity. He was an asset. He was a resource. And his value, what I was communicating is his value was based on what he does for me or even for us. And that is a dangerous trap to fall into. And it is an easy trap to fall into. Because when we do that, When people's worth to us, their value to us, their importance to us becomes defined by what they do for us or what they provide for us or what they give to us, whatever our arbitrary definition is, when that becomes the measure of a person's worth, here's what happens. When they don't hit that standard, push them to the sides. We 
push them to the outskirts of our circles, of our relationships, of our communities, and they become the marginalized. They become the other. They become the burden. They become the, the threat. I mean, we use all kinds of language, but it's very, very dangerous. That's why over and over in the Old Testament, the prophets, Jeremiah, Elijah, Amos, over and over they reminded the people that their call was to care for the stranger, to provide for the widow, and to care for the orphan. The strangers, the widows, and the orphans, over and over again, they reminded the people that was what God had commanded them to do. You know why they kept having to remind the people to do that? Because they weren't doing it. Because in that society, widows didn't bring anything to the table. If you're a widow, if, and, I, and I, this sounds cruel and I'm not endorsing it, but the reality was if you're a widow and you weren't attached to a man who had resources and assets, you didn't have anything. You were a burden. If you were an orphan, same thing. You didn't bring anything of tangible value to the table. And so they become pushed aside. They become outskirts. They become brushed out of the way. And we give them all kinds of labels. And we call them all kinds of things. Well, Jesus talked about them. In fact, Jesus gave them a label. You know what Jesus called them in Luke chapter 6? He called them blessed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. In, in Matthew 5 as well. And in Matthew 25, Jesus has another description of them. These people that are so easy to marginalize, so easy to not see, so easy to devalue. He says, oh, by the way, these are my brothers and sisters. When you have done it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done it for me. We have to be careful, lest we become just like those Jewish leaders that saw people's worth based on what they provide for us. Because the gospel confronts it. The gospel challenges it. The eyes of Christ don't see it. In fact, what Paul and Silas saw were not commodities and assets. They saw, always saw people who were invited through faith to become children of God. That's the way they saw others. Sometimes we fail to see through that kind of a lens. Because when we do, we stand up for the others. And that sometimes disrupts life. And that sometimes ruffles feathers. And that sometimes makes people mad because it threatens the status quo. You know, the charge levied against the church, against Paul and Silas, was that they are worshiping a king other than the emperor. They're worshiping this king who isn't Caesar, but who is Jesus. And you know what? That is exactly true. And in fact, that's the same charge that was levied against Jesus. And oh, by the way, that got him nailed to a cross. Because Jesus wasn't willing to just stand by with the way things are. But he was willing to challenge and to see people differently. And he calls the church to do the same. And that isn't always comfortable. Now, I'll tell you, I walked the streets of Houston on Monday night at about 10 o'clock at night with a group, and we were taking water and food to people that were living in parks and addicted to drugs and were not the kind of people I normally hang out with. And it was hard. It was uncomfortable. And it was 
painful at times to try to see them the way Jesus sees them and not the way my mind tells me to see them as people who have made bad choices and walked away from the ways of God, but to see them as children of God. You know, we live in a community right here in our own neighborhood, right here in Parish. We're not very diverse ethnically, but you know, we have a real solid line here. And I don't know exactly what to do about it. I don't even know how to meet it, but we have a real solid line about this train tracks between the Caucasian and the Hispanic community. They shop in their stores, we shop in ours. They have their places of worship, we have ours. There's, there's very little connection there. And I'm guilty. I'm not throwing stones. But, but here's what I know. Every Friday night, every Sunday night, there's a group of Hispanic believers that worship at this church in our historic chapel. And I will tell you, it's hard to talk to them because they don't speak very good, most of them, not all of them, most of them don't speak very good English, and I speak no Spanish. And it's easy for me not to see them. I mean, I know they're there, but it's easy for me not to see them. But what I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is aside from white American and Hispanic and all of these designations, that they're my brothers and sisters. They're my brothers and sisters. Because we're one in Christ. My challenge is how do I live into that? I'm not always sure. Who are you being called to see? Who are you being called to stand for? Who are you being called to, to be willing to disrupt the way things are to make sure that they are valued and not seen as a commodity or an asset, but as a loved child of God? That's the challenge of Acts 17. That's the challenge of Acts 16. That's the challenge of the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not easy. But that's what it means to be a people in a church willing to turn the world upside down. It's willing to do the things that are popular. And it's willing to do the things that aren't. But to stand with others. Stand with our brothers and sisters. Stand with the marginalized and the forgotten, the blessed and the brothers and sisters, because that's how Jesus sees them. The question is, how do we see them? And are we willing to be the kind of people that we are called to be? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, challenge us today. Disrupt us. Unsettle us. Even if necessary, make us a little mad. Because we're given a charge, and that's to follow Jesus. And the way of Jesus is the way of obedience. Obedience to you. It's the way of love. Radical love. It's the way of grace. May we be that kind of people. A holy disruption that says that we will love the way Christ is loved. We will see through the eyes of Jesus. And we will be who you have called us to be. That's our challenge. Lord, make us faithful. In Christ we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of